Hey, are you hiring? If you answered yes, let Zentegra Staffing help staff your IT people needs. Head over to Zentegra.com forward slash Zentegra Staffing to find out more. Zentegra Staffing, we can staff your IT people needs. Welcome to another edition of the Citrix Session with your hosts, Andy Whiteside and Bill Sutton, your source for all things Citrix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of the Citrix Session podcast. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. I've got Bill Sutton with me. Bill's back from uh, some well-deserved PTO. Bill, how did it go? I uh, went great, Andy. Thank you. Um, had a good time with the family down in the part of South Carolina, but we got back before it got worse. So it's all good. That's good. That's good. Uh, we've got with us Miguel Contreras. Miguel is, um, uh, we were joking before the podcast, I'm just going to call him the most important guy at Citrix. And, and the reason why I say that is because uh, because no matter who's driving the ship, the thing that makes Citrix Citrix is what's called ICA and the Independent Computing Architecture Protocol, uh, also somewhat related to remote display protocol on the Microsoft side, at least it was in, in, when it was birthed. Uh, but Miguel, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about exactly what you cover. But you're the HDX guy, and I don't, I don't mean the Home Depot HDX guy. I mean the right. HDX guy that covers, the, uh, <laughs> covers what's most important to a lot of us at Citrix, which is the protocol that makes all the magic happen. You want to you enlighten us a little bit more uh, about what that means you cover? Absolutely. So, uh, well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, so I'm a product manager in the HCX team within Citrix. Uh, you know, like you said, we we cover the transport and what drives the you know performance, the user experience of you know your virtual sessions. Uh, I specifically own the uh, ICA stack, uh, and that you know has to do with uh you know all the nuts and bolts of what enables the 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 ICA as a protocol so virtual channel platform uh network transport for ICA uh integration with uh windows authentication and things like that um so um you know i basically i'm the i'm the owner of all of that um well, and that's that's the most important thing, right? User experience is number one when it comes to uh, IT, just in general, providing access to the technologies. But specifically, when you start talking about remote delivery protocols and, and virtual desktops that run in data centers and, and in clouds that aren't local, and and that little connection between the display card, display adapter, and the uh, and the monitor of whatever the monitor is, is now traveling hundreds if not thousands of miles across the network versus a little bitty short cable uh it's it's what's oh, yeah. to our whole industry yeah yeah um yeah i mean to to be fair you know there are also you know other components within dhcx umbrella uh probably you know i guess the second most important one would be uh the graphics subsystem uh, which is an in you know separate domain altogether, but you know I think that you put you know the transport and graphics you know that's you know bare bones what you would consider the I guess the most important parts for a great user experience. Um, I do not own graphics, but you know we work closely together, so we're part of the same team. 
Yeah, that, those are the building blocks, right? Those are the foundations yeah. that make up a, a good user experience or not a good user experience. And you throw in, throw into that the fact that you're relying on networks that <clears throat> historically have been unpredictable, but are becoming more and more predictable uh, as the software gets better. Networks are also getting better. And at the end of the day, you, this thing that seems magical, if you stop and really think about the um, what all has to go into it, uh, well, it's not magic, right? There's there's technology that makes it happen, but man, is it is it quite uh, interesting and complex? And to the end user, it, it really should seem magical that what's on one computer's screen in theory shows up on another computer thousands of miles away and 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 does so efficiently is is, is a pretty awesome story. Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, the name of this podcast, or excuse me, this blog. Um, is uh, enlightened display transport is getting even smarter and more robust. So EDT, right? Enlightened display transport that's been around Citrix for a couple of years now. Um, if you could just explain what EDT is and also help us understand the, the, the difference between that and the adaptive um, display protocol at Citrix or adaptive transport. Maybe I'm screwing that up. But anyway, those, those two terms kind of get co-mingled with each other. And sometimes I think they mean the same things. And, and sometimes I think they're different things. Can you, can you explain what EDT is all about and how it compares to sure. the other? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, ED, EDTs are an enlightened data transport. It's a in, a, in a, in a very simplistic manner, it's a network transport protocol. So it's, you know, similar to what you would say TCP. It's a reliable transport protocol. Uh, you know, biggest difference between um, EDT and, and TCP really being that EDT is built on top of UDP. So on top of an unreliable network layer that um, allows us to be a lot more efficient and more responsive because we don't have a lot of, you know, dependencies on the, you know, on the intricacies of TCP and the built-in um you know, reliability components that come along with that. So adaptive transport, uh, it's often associated with EDT. And and I guess primarily because in order to use EDT with our product, you need to enable the adaptive transport feature. Uh, There are two separate things though. Okay, adaptive transport is simply a mechanism that allows our product to uh, basically select and decide which which transport protocol to use for the session. When you enable uh, adaptive transport today, it will tell the VDA that uh, to use EDT uh, as its preferred uh, transport protocol for the session. If for whatever reason EDT is not available, then it will fall back to TCP. Uh, In the event that you connect with TCP, in the background it will try to continue to reestablish the session using EDT without any type of uh, user uh, interaction required. So it all happens seamlessly uh, behind the scenes. Uh, so that's really what, what adaptive transport is. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Adaptive transport is the, uh, the intelligence that you enable as a feature that allows it to pick EDT over TCP. TCP is what we grew up on ICA using, right? But then EDT. Correct. And, and EDT, and I think you may or may not have said this, uh, it, it leverages UDP as its foundation, which is a much more uh, resilient and much more uh, user experience friendly protocol. Uh, think of like your VoIP solutions that, you know, you, you don't care what Bob said two minutes ago. We don't need to resend that traffic. Let's just move on to what Bob's saying right now. Uh, that's the, that's the beauty of the beauty of EDT leveraging UDP and adaptive transport uh, is what you enable to allow it to make that decision for you. Is that a good answer? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, the one thing I just like to uh, to clarify there. So UDP itself is actually not more resilient than TCP, right? Like TCP and UDP are basically polar opposites when it comes to resiliency in the sense that TCP was built to be a reliable and resilient protocol, whereas UDP is just fire and forget. Right. So as a result, UDP is more agile, right? We can, we can fire traffic you know, faster than we can with TCP just because we're not waiting on acknowledgements before we can say, okay, we can send the next data packet. Um, so we leverage that agility of the UDP stack to allow us to move faster. Now, because at the end of the day, we still need our sessions to be transmitted in a you know reliable manner. We built our own, um, you know, reliability uh, mechanism on it, so it's it's similar to TCP in the way where in the way that we still have you know acknowledgements uh, and whatnot in order to determine you know what when when the data packets are sent and received or if they're not received and things of the sort. Uh, but but it's built into the ICA stack, so it's handled exclusively by Citrix components. So no components in the middle between client and VDA have anything to do with it. So there's less uh, overhead associated with it. We can respond a lot faster rather than having to wait for you know uh, receipts and acknowledgements in between every single piece of the of the hub. You know the entire every single hub in between client and server. So you're relying on the application layer to um, decide, you know, what order things came in and whether it even cares whether we put them back together or not, because, you know, things have moved on and and we don't, you know, we're not worried about what Bob said 30 seconds ago, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, I wish I wish we were there together in a room right now. We'd be I'd, I'd throw pencils at you and, and you could shake your head every time you got a pencil and I'd get my acknowledgement. And then at some point you're like, just throw a bunch of pencils at me. I don't care. I'll, I'll end up with the same result. That's usually my way of showing people. Hey, Bill. Um, oh, well, before I go there, I do have one question to kind of get in, into that mix there. Uh, where does FrameHawk fit into all this? Is it is it related at all? Is, does it fall under you? Is it showing up in EDT or is that just a, a screen? Um, um, tell me where FrameHawk went. Uh, that, that was a question for me or for Bill? I think it's Not a question for, for you, but I bet <laughs> okay. Bill this. I bet yeah, Bill so... Okay, so that, that's a great question. Uh, Framehawk, uh, so actually Framehawk was uh, removed from the product a few releases ago. Uh, I believe at some point last year, actually. I don't remember the exact version. But uh, Framehawk was uh, a UDP-based uh, trans, uh, you know, UDP-based protocol, uh, and it was uh, exclusively graphics-focused. So it provided, you know, very little in in terms of functionality, like, uh, um, you know, like like device like remote device pass through. So like, you know, you couldn't do USB pass through and things like that. Um, it was focused exclusively just on, you know, being super fast and efficient with graphics. So that was really all that Framehawk had to do. Um, and and it was again UDP based, so it was uh, unreliable transport as well. And um, you know it 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 based you know at, at a high level, it it allowed to provide great responsiveness and um, user experience in challenging networks. Um, but it, again, it was it was basically just a graphics thing. Uh, it was very limited in terms of what we could do outside of the graphics realm. So uh, we we um, 
we deprecated the functionality and eventually removed it from from the product. Um, the the replacement for that actually is uh, what we call um, EDT lossy, which basically we took EDT and then removed the reliability component from it to make it true fire and forget. So the the first version of that was released uh, actually. Uh, in Q1 of this year with uh, with virtual apps and desktops 2003. And uh, it's what we, you know, we called within the product um, loss tolerant mode. So um, the way that that works is that we actually are able to switch the transport protocol on a per virtual channel basis rather for the entire session. So right now it only supports graphics. So when we, we are, when we are functioning and loss tolerant mode, what happens is the entire session is still using reliable EDT and only the graphics virtual channel is being transported with unreliable transport. So it allows, and that's really what, what drives mostly of what, you know, the user perceives as user uh, experience. So you get, you know, the quick refreshes and quick responses, you know, from a graphical standpoint uh, and everything else can still be transported using reliable transport. Um, one, of, one of the key drivers behind that uh, type of functionality is the fact that not everything is um, a good candidate for unreliable transport. So say, for example, you're doing a file transfer. Uh, you need to make sure that your file transports are completed, you know, completely, right? You, you can't drop packets in the transfer and then expect this file to be reassembled on the other end somehow. So that still needs to be reliable transport. Uh, and, and of course, if you're in an unreliable network that, you know, it will take longer, but it will complete and it will complete you know, properly, it won't, you know, there won't be any data missing. Um, so, but yeah, so version one uh, supports graphics. And then as as we continue to improve the, the, the protocol and the stack will add support for uh, other virtual channels uh, like audio, for example. So we can do true and reliable audio transport for better, trans, uh, better uh, audio quality and responsiveness. Uh, and then, you know, again, we'll continue to evaluate the rest of the stack and see which uh, virtual channels make sense for reliable transport and challenging networks. Yeah, well, that's great. That's, that's certainly where it needs to go. Yeah. Bill, sorry, I, I asked you a question or asked you to jump in, then I cut you off. Do you have any thoughts or comments on this? Uh, well, you asked me, you started to ask me for my question, then you asked my question. So um, actually kind of funny how we were both thinking the same thing there. But what I was going to do is just make, just clarify with Miguel a little bit here. It sounds like what I'm hearing is that EDT is more of the, more of the, uh, the reliability component of the UDP transport. Yeah, yeah, pretty you're eliminating slow start, you're eliminating Synac, all that stuff, but you've built your own reliability engine, as it were, on top of the UDP stack, kind of similar in some ways to some things Citrix has done in the past with some of their, like with PVS and the protocol that it used. It was based on UDP, wasn't it? And and uh, I think it had its own its own reliability elements uh, contained therein. So that's what it sounds like this really is focused on. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, at a very high level, that's that's pretty yeah. much it. You know, we re- Build our reliability component on, on top of UDP. Yeah. 
So guys, let's talk about uh, this blog because we haven't got there yet. We've just been talking about State of the Union and where things came from. Uh, Miguel, it looks like in this blog, we're talking about uh, MTU discovery and being able to understand the size of the the, um, the size of the packets that are coming across and, and let that help determine whether EDT kicks in or, or it hands it off to uh, TCP. Help, help us understand the blog and what we're covering here. Sure. Yeah. So, so really the, the blog is centered on a new capability we added to EDT, uh, which is uh, MTU Discovery. So MTU Discovery, it's not something new and exclusive to us. It's a, a network standard that has existed for a long, long time. Um, but it's usually something that that's uh, part of, you know, what you call your, you know, your network appliances and, you know, uh, dedicated components to, you know, network type intelligence and type of thing. Um, we, what we did is, yeah, go ahead. Something real quick. I, I, um, you, I, and Bill all know what MTU means, but MTU, yeah. like maximum transmission unit, that's the size of the packets that are coming across the network. And, and a lot of people, maybe some people listening to this don't know that in some cases we have a standard size, but some cases we make them bigger and in many cases we make them smaller. And, and that really just throws everything out of whack when that happens. And, and I think that's really what you're addressing here is, you know, how to yes. how to that. So um, message transmission unit, that's the size of the data chunks that we're sending over. And that's what MTU stands for. Sorry, I wanted to just clarify that. Yeah, that's, that's fine. I know that, that's, uh, that's good to clarify. Yeah. So, um, so why, but so why did we add this capability to the, to the, um, to the product? So, so, you know, going back to, to your comment about what MTU is, uh, our, the standard, the standard MTU is 1500 bytes. Uh, and and that's that's what we default to. It's 1500 bytes per packet. And um, the, the the reality is though, uh, you know, it 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 used it wasn't so much of a problem before, but you know, it's something that became increasingly uh, more prevalent as we saw more people uh, work shifting and connecting from you know what used to be very random locations, right? Like oh, somebody's working from home today, or or working from a coffee shop, and things that you know used to be pretty pretty rare in the past, and now are you know the norm. So what what that uh, introduced uh, into the equation is uh, inconsistency in terms of network expectations. Not all networks are made the same, uh, and even networks that you know, at least from a label perspective, you know, you would expect to be the same, depending on the underlying components and configuration. They they could actually have different characteristics. So specifically to this, uh, the the one thing that that we noticed is that um, the maximum transmission unit. Uh, that that users were subjected to was actually very different in many different networks. So you know we used to we used to expect that 1500 was the standard everywhere, and that was great. Uh, but then we realized, you know, obviously when when you have a VPN connection, for example, there is some overhead associated with that. You're, you're encapsulating your traffic in um, in TLS encryption or SSL encryption uh, in the past. And what that does is that, you know, it reduces the amount of data that you can send uh, in a single packet because now some of that uh, space, it's filled with the TLS encapsulation. And so now 
before you had 1500 bytes to yourself, now you have to share it with the TLS uh, tunnel. So that, you know, reduces your, your maximum transmission unit for, for the application data itself, let's say 1350, because, you know, the, the remainder is used by uh, TLS encapsulation. So what happens in that scenario? As an application, I'm not aware that there is encapsulation going on. So I still send my 1500 bytes, but then once it gets to the network layer, um, you know, the, the VPN, let's say in this case, will take, will take that data and we'll see it and says, well, the MTU at the network level is still 1500, but I need to, you know, wrap this data around, uh, around my, my encapsulation layer. Um, and I still need to send it out, but I can't take the full 1500 bytes. So I'm just going to take whatever I can encapsulate and send it out the remainder, um, you know, I'm going to fragment the data and then the remainder, I'll send it in a separate packet. And then on the receiving end, I'll take those two fragments of the, of the data. I'll, you know, unwrap them, reassemble them. And then, you know, that's what happens. Um, on the TCP world that works pretty well, um, on the UDP world, not so great. Uh, implementations we've seen are, are, you know, inconsistent at best. Um, and so, you know, with, with all the issues that we saw with, uh, you know, UDP fragmentation reassembly, uh, you know, that, that was, that was fun, you know, to put it that way. Um, so, um, this type of scenario also plays out in different network uh, environments. So, so VPN is it's it's an easy one to understand because you understand why uh, the applicate the the effective MTU is slower because you understand that you know some of the some of the space in the packet is being used for the VPN encapsulation. However, there are other scenarios that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm honestly not familiar with the reasoning behind it, but if you look, for example, at uh, mobile networks like 3G, 4G, LTE, uh, they use non-standard MTUs as well. And so when you have a user connecting to a Citrix environment uh, using a mobile hotspot or tethering from their phone, um, their connection will have an MTU uh, that's lower than the 1500. And as a result, the packets will get fragmented the same way. Um, even even actually with with different Wi-Fi solutions, we found that some some Wi-Fi um, access points, for whatever reason, they they use different MTUs, and this is something that's not standard across the uh, you know uh, access points vendors by any means. And, so, and Miguel, yeah. sometimes it's the uh, network administrator who goes in little terminal session. Uh-huh decides what the uh, MTU is going to be. And a lot of times they don't tell anybody. And then the application owner, vendor, user, they're just getting the fall out of it with what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, and yeah, so, so that's, that's the, that's what we are, you know, seeing it's very common right now. Um, And so, you know, as a result, we started seeing more issues resulting from the fragmentation of of EDT traffic and, you know, UDP uh, as a whole. Um, And so, you know, we we came up with a workaround, uh, which was to hard code an MTU for for Citrix sessions. And that, you know, that fixed the problem in the the short term. Uh, Problem with that workaround is that it's a universal setting. And you're basically forcing every single user to use the same MTU, even if it's not what's optimal for them. So um, 
there are very minimal side effects to that, but you know the, the fact that you actually have to go in and configure it and, and try to figure out it works for everybody uh, was it's kind, of, kind of pain. So we wanted we wanted to to avoid that in the future, and that's why we thought, well, you know what, let's just let the protocol figure it out without any extra configuration required, and every single session would be able to figure out what's the best MTU for that session. So that way, no. You know, no you no user will be subjected to a lower MTU than it should, and um, you know we'll make sure that we are, you know, always providing the max maximum packet size that we can for the best performance possible. Um, so that's that's really wh- why we came to to uh, to the conclusion that we needed to add this feature to the protocol. So, hey Miguel, where does yeah. that uh, where does that intelligence happen on the on the VDA side or on the workspace uh, app side or both? It's both. So there's there's actually client side uh, components to this as well as VDA uh, side components to it. And the, the way that it works um, is actually when when we when the when the feature is enabled, when the session established is actually established with a very low MTU. The reason for that is, is what we want to make sure that the session is established correctly to allow to get the user to see their desktop or application and start working right away. Now, once the once a session is established in the background, we start um, querying the network, if you will, for what's the appropriate packet size. So we start testing various packet sizes and, you know, we start increasing, increasing, increasing until we break, basically. And then once we figure out what's that maximum size, then we seamlessly change the MTU for the session um, without, you know, interrupting the user session or anything. Okay. Yeah, but for that for that to work, you know, both the VDA and the workspace app need to understand the feature so that they know what to do with that with those control packets that we send for for that uh, interrogation period, basically. And and what kind of um, CPU load does this additional work create? Is it is it measurable or is it pretty? It's easy? it's negligible to be completely honest. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the discovery process happens so fast anyway that even if there was a moderate CPU usage, it would be for a couple of seconds only. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I had uh, I, I do have a question going back to some of the graphics stuff you mentioned earlier, which you know, from our previous conversation might be a little bit out of your wheelhouse. Um, the, the graphics and how that associates with using the proper protocol, um, how much of that is benefited by things like a, a GPU in the server, whether it's a physical or some type of virtualized GPU? Is that something you can answer? Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not the expert on the subject, but, um, but basically, so, so the, ben- the benefit of having the GPU on the, on the VDA, it's basically the same, it's the same thing uh, at a high level of, you know, having the, the GPU present in your physical endpoint, right? You need, you need a, a processing unit that has the capabilities of, you know, to render and, and process all those uh, graphics that, that you are, uh, you know, using in your session. Um, you know, from a Citrix perspective, you know we're we're showing the user what's happening on on that on that VDA, right? Whether it be a workstation or, or server machine. But if that if that VDA machine doesn't have the capability to to render and and analyze and process uh, the graphics accordingly, then you know on the on the receiving end on the user side, then they they're not going to see you know obviously anything good. So before you can actually present something 
presentable to the user, the machine where your workload is running has to be capable of, of rendering the content. Yeah, I guess the takeaway there is no matter how efficient the transport is, if the rendering is slow or non-performant, the user's going to see that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Miguel asked that question because as it relates to here, as well as the graphics, um, you know, obviously if it's a Windows endpoint, the, the workspace app there is probably going to be the first one that's enabled for this. And then I assume Linux after that. And then I'm doing a lot of work with Google and, and this is coming up a couple times on the, uh, the Google app side of things. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, a synchronous, right? Or asynchronous solution where both sides have to play along here in order to take advantage of the intelligence you guys are adding in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, specifically for MTU Discovery on EDT, uh, right now we support it with the Workspace app for Windows, uh, starting with Workspace app version 1912. Uh, same thing on the VDA side. So you need VDA version 1912 or later. And um, we are uh, currently working on adding this capability to other client platforms. So the goal is to get all the you know desktop platforms taken care of. Uh, I don't have a timeline right now, but you know hopefully if if I if I can get my wishes come true, then you know hopefully by by later this year we can we can accommodate that. But uh, the immediate target would be Mac and Linux as the next platforms to support this. No, that's and, great. Uh, I know you yeah. guys, it's always a conundrum, right? Because you have so many platforms that you support with the Workspace app, but at the same time, you got some. Someone's got to come first and second and third. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's and that's that's something that um, you know we're we're trying to improve on as well. Uh, trying to to make it easier for everybody involved to adopt newer features. Uh, quicker, if not at the same time, when, when whenever it, it may be possible. Um, you know, there's, I think there's, there's some stuff that we can do there to, to accommodate across cross platform releases. Um, there will, there will always be scenarios in which certain things, uh, you know, will, will have platform specific dependencies and we'll have, to, you know, those get evaluated on a case by case basis. But uh, yeah, that's something that, that we're working towards improving as well. So, Bill, any other questions or comments here? This has been great. I, anytime we can talk protocol in the world of Citrix and, and be technical about it, that's that that's when you know that's when true consultants in the Citrix space really get excited because that's that's where the that's where the flag was planted thirty years ago. So, Bill, any additional thoughts or comments? Um, I think we may have lost Bill. Yeah, we may have. So, Miguel, what's uh, what else b- before we wrap up here? What else uh, in the world of of protocols uh, at Citrix would you want to maybe just highlight here before we before we wrap this one up? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so EDT EDT, EDT, uh, EDT MTU Discovery is, uh, is the latest and greatest, uh, you know, in the in the EDT stack. Uh, again, we're working towards adding that to the other platforms. Uh, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But you know, definitely very exciting stuff. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, another uh, great addition to the stack uh, in terms of transport is uh, EDT Lossy, or what you might find in the policies as um, loss tolerant mode. So there's there's more to come in that area. Uh, again, right now we support um, full screen H.264 graphics with loss tolerant mode. 
and uh, we will be releasing support for that through Gateway in the in the near future, I hope, as well as support for that protocol on the other platforms and uh, additional virtual channels. So those are, you know, from a transport perspective, those are the things that we are working towards right now and we're trying to focus as much as possible on that. Um, but yeah, lots of, uh, in HDX in general, there's there's a lot of uh, great, exciting stuff coming there as well. Yeah, I find it interesting. We're you know, 30 years into all this and, and that's, and, and that's, really where the rubber meets the road and you guys are still making advancements there. That's, that, that's the real investment that I personally enjoy seeing from Citrix. Some of the other things are nice, but this is where, you know, where we, where you guys make a huge impact on the space and, and show good leadership. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it seems like every time we have conversations like this every six months or every year, it's uh, more, more good stuff to come. And then six months later it's been released and then we, it's more, more good stuff to come. So it's uh, the continued innovation is uh, definitely welcome by us and obviously by end users. Oh, that is, that is great to hear. You know, we, uh, we, we like to, you know, add, add things that are, that are actually useful to our customers and users. So, you know, to get that feedback, is always great. Um, you know, now, now that I'm thinking about it, one thing I like to call out, which is completely unrelated to, to EDT or transport in general, but we, we did release a an enhancement in the product that's uh, more geared uh, towards uh, security than, than transport enhancement or anything like that, is uh, we added a virtual channel allow list feature, which uh, basically locks down the virtual channels that are allowed to be opened within a Citrix session. So, uh, you know, if you haven't checked that out, I definitely recommend folks and, and you guys as well to take a look at it. And basically what it does is that when you enable the, the setting, it only allows the built-in Citrix virtual channels forever from ever being opened within a session. If you have, you know, if anybody were to add a custom virtual channel, those are automatically blocked. Um, and um, if you are in an, you know, in an environment where you have your own custom virtual channel or you have any third-party solutions that have their own uh, custom virtual channels for integration with, with Citrix, uh, those can actually be added to the list manually within the policy. Uh, that gives you control over you know, which custom virtual channels you want to allow uh, rather than leaving it open. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, you know, trying, you know, from a security standpoint, trying to, you know, to be a little more secure and uh, giving people more control over, you know, what happens within their sessions uh, and, you know, what's allowed to come in and out. So something to, to look into. Yeah, I hear custom virtual channel and just think what could possibly go wrong, but obviously there's some <laughs> use cases where it does make sense. <laughs> All right, Miguel, thank you for the time, man. It's been great. And uh, keep us posted, and we'll keep an eye out for your blogs. And, and as you have them released, we'll definitely have you back. Sounds yeah, good. Miguel. Thanks for having me, guys. Great talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right.
thank you for listening to The Citrix Session with your hosts, Andy Whiteside and Bill Sutton. A special thanks to our guest for attending today's podcast. Podcast produced by Pete Downing. For any input or if you'd like to be a part of our podcast, please email us at info at Zentegra.com. Please head over to Zentegra.com forward slash podcast to listen to all podcasts in this series. This podcast is copyrighted by Zentegra LLC. Thank you.